Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from Physio Room, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're going to explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, wherever you're listening to this. Welcome back to this episode of The Code. Really excited to talk with our special guest today, Rob Wolf. Rob is a two-time best-selling author. If you've not if you've not heard of him, you should definitely go check him out. Two-time best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and the book Wired to Eat. It's also a newer book that I just finished reading of his, um, Sacred Cow. Former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. Uh, what we're going to talk about on this show specifically, we're going to dive into um, Element. Some of you that know us at Physio Room, um, where, where I spend a lot of my time, may have tried this product. I've been using it for about a year now and absolutely love this stuff. So without any further ado, Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you today. A huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, we were just sort of chatting off air. You mentioned that you and your family recently moved up to um, Montana, but can you just give a brief background, Rob, to the folks listening to this show, you know, about yourself, how you got into, you know, you're huge in the nutrition world. We're going to talk a bit about electrolytes, but like, tell us a little bit about you. Sure, sure. I just turned 50 in January. And so I, I noticed that my origin story just keeps stretching <laughs> out more and more and uh, get the wandering old man thing. So I'll try to be concise with it. But uh, I've always been interested in, you know, kind of health and human performance. My my uh, family of origin, unfortunately, was not all that healthy. Both my parents smoked. Uh, my dad drank quite a bit. Um, my mom, now looking back, had several autoimmune related issues. And I didn't figure that out until quite quite late in the game, but I always kind of suspected that if I ate and moved in a way that was different than my, my parents and the bulk of my family, I might have some, some better outcomes with health. And so I ended up doing an undergrad in biochemistry, was looking at either medical school or a research track. And it was around this time, this was the, the mid to late 90s that I, I got really, really sick. I was mm. eating a high carb, low fat, vegan type diet. And um, for me, it was a really bad fit. I think for some people it works fantastically, but for me, it was a terrible fit. I ended up with ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing either a, a bowel resection or immunosuppressant drugs or both. Um, I'm about 165, 170 pounds. I'm five foot nine. At the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was down to 125, 130 pounds from malabsorption issues. So I was I was in pretty rough shape and it was a, a long story how I came to this idea of like ancestral health, ancestral nutrition, but that idea got on my radar. I tinkered with what we would now call kind of a low carb paleo type diet. And for me, it was nothing short of miraculous. Like it, it put my ulcerative colitis into remission and really helped to restore my health and kind of got me on this this path of looking at things through this evolutionary biology kind of kind of lens, um, everything from like photoperiod and circadian biology, gut microbiota, the community around us. You know, I started looking at all this stuff from that kind of hunter gatherer perspective, and yeah. then it, it, you know, uh, ironically, I ended up uh, getting involved with this kind of weird workout around 2000 2001 called CrossFit, right. and. Uh, uh, my friend, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started working out in his garage. And within about four months of us training, we had 15 or so people that we were training out there. And I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit. And I was like, hey, we really love the program. Uh, we're training people. We want to open a commercial gym. Can we call it CrossFit? And they were like, yes, go be achieved, do it. And so that was CrossFit North. That was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. And then I had a chance to move from Seattle back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad. And the, the big difference between Chico and Seattle is in Chico, there's this fiery orb in the sky called the sun. And so I had a chance to move somewhere where there was actually some reasonable, you know, photo period and everything. And I opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. 
uh, and then went on to write, uh, I guess, kind of the first paleo diet book that that started that genre. It made New York Times bestseller, and you know, all kinds of good stuff came out of that. And I, I've done work with police, military, and fire. Subsequent to that, I was on the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program for about six years, where I went and spoke to the SEAL teams, the special boat teams, and the families of those folks at their pre and post deployment events, and have been very fortunate to do just a bunch of different stuff, ranging from working with, again, you know, elite military personnel, elite athletes, but honestly, my, my, um, my sweet spot is working with people similar to myself, folks who have had really complex gut and autoimmune issues and a little bit of metabolic, you know, disease and figuring out how to, how to fix that. And so, although I've had a great opportunity to work with kind of, you know, elite folks from different areas, um, the, the average schlep like myself who just, you know, the, the person that, that is a perfect fit for me, they've kind of run the gauntlet of standard medical intervention, but they're still not where they want to be with health. And yeah. that is kind of the, the center of the bullseye for me, the folks that I seem to really um, bond with the best. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, you went through a lot of stuff there that I, I want to unpack. I had some talking prompts uh, questions planned for this episode, but I think we're just going to scrap that. And we're just going to dive into some of the stuff that, that you just talked about. And, you know, you said, you know, like the main person that you work with, you enjoy working with and can help is kind of just the normal person that has issues that they're dealing with, just like you had your own issues that you went through, which changed the trajectory of how you were approaching things. And it's so funny to me that when we start talking about the, like the medical system and nutrition and how we take care of our bodies, when we're having issues and no one can seem to figure it out, what we always end up coming back to, whether it's in a functional medicine office or a naturopathic doctor or, or whatever, is we come back to like the key areas of sleep, managing our stress. What do we put in our mouths? Like, what are we putting in our body? And, you know, it's not all of the, the medical medication and stuff. It's just the basic stuff that we could have been doing right all along, but we get off track sometimes. And and that just throws things off, but, but no, that is, that is awesome. Um, you know, we, you mentioned CrossFit, we work with a lot of CrossFit athletes in our office. We have employees that participate in CrossFit. So we are very, um, very fortunate to be part of that community and some of the gyms that we work yep. with here in the Denver area. Um, and I think the community of it, like you just said, you started and all of a sudden there's like 15 people here and, um, you know, can we turn this into a real real gym and a real business because we have people wanting to work out together. Yeah. You know, the, the CrossFit scene is fascinating to me in that, um, like my second book of wired to eat, I broke the pillar four pillars of health down into sleep or circadian biology, food movement, and then community in the community. I was kind of, I'm more of a lumper than a splitter. Like I put gut microbiota and the people that we hang out with, like that's all of our, <laughs> our community together, everything from microbes to, to people. But um, in a, in a well-run gym, the coach is going to talk to you about sleep yeah. and recovery. They're going to give you, they're going to bend your ear about good, good nutrition and, and how to properly feel yourself. It, it just as a side note too, something that I really liked about CrossFit is we had no disordered eating in the gym, because mm -hmm. it, although people wanted to be lean and they wanted to look good and everything, when you write people's name on the board and you have the prospect of coming in dead last or like seeing where you yeah. rank on a workout, we would have like a, a particular, in particular women um, who would be motoring along and they're doing great. And then they start sliding down the leaderboard. And I'm like, what's going on with you? And you do a little bit of poking around. They're like, well, I've been skipping meals because I want to you know, look better or whatever. And yeah. I'm like, listen, um, do you want Jenny to keep kicking your ass in the workout? And the woman yeah. is basically like, fuck no. You no know? I'm I like, don't. okay, yeah. well, let's eat properly. And once you get to where you can do 20 pull-ups and you can standing press your body weight, and you, right. you could, then you're going to have the physique you want. And it was really cool in that regard. Like, I think that there's a lot of uh, stuff that could be improved with CrossFit, like the onboarding and, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, appropriate dose and all that stuff. But one of the really cool things is the fact that it is performance first, aesthetics second. Yeah. Um, I just didn't see the ubiquity of disordered eating and you had a really easy leverage to, to, to handle that in the gym. Whereas 
when I did more just straight up like body composition kind of physique work with people, it was super easy for people to spin out both men and women and get into this kind of mm -hmm. disordered eating. So I, I really appreciated the power of that kind of performance oriented piece. And then, you know, uh, I, you've got that exercise, you've got that community. Um, we opened our gym a couple of years before the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, we opened in 2004. And yeah. so what was interesting there is we had people who had lost almost everything, you know, they mm. were unemployed, maybe lost a house, you know, lots of stuff. They didn't cancel their gym membership. And what they found was that being in the gym and hustling, like somebody somewhere knew someone that they could do right. something. And so they would find some work or they would find another career path and stuff like that. And so we just found the social connections within the gym, like invaluable, like you just couldn't um, replicate that anywhere else. And so it, it was interesting in the, this one-stop shop and the fact that you spent three to five hours a week with these people, you know, depending on how often they came in, like there was a, a huge opportunity to, to have a massive impact on their lives. And it, it, uh, it, I, I'm glad that I didn't end up continuing with regular medical school because I think it would have hated that. Like the type of medicine I wanted to practice is the gym. Like that's, yeah. that's definitely what, what worked for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think you and I have something in common there. I mean, our, our clinic at physio room, very performance based, like, you know, obviously we're talking about getting people's symptoms to improve when they come in with knee pain, but right. it's not about the knee pain. It's about the things that they want to do. It's about the squats that they want to perform. It's about the hiking or the biking or the, the whatever it's about the performance. And, and through that gym community, honestly, is how we ended up having this conversation. So, mm -hmm. you know, one of our offices here is inside of a gym, uh, lion's den strength, mobility, and performance. Mm -hmm. And, their owner, uh, Tristan and his wife, Haley, they two own the gym through the product element is how we ended up getting connected with you. So, you know, Tristan is big into, um, you know, the ancestral diet. Um, I don't like to use the word diet, but eating approach, lifestyle approach. And, um, he's a big time runner. So he lifts, he runs, runs marathons. So he's always talking about getting adequate electrolytes in. So he starts using this product called Element. I see him pouring little packets into his water. So of course I'm asking him, hey, what do you got there? So he starts telling me about it and then they start carrying it in the gym, you know, sharing it with their clientele, sharing it with, um, with their staff. And then we wanted to do the same thing because after I had started using it for a few weeks, I was like, wow, I like this stuff better than a lot of the other things that I've tried. Mm -hmm. um, and I've you know, tried a lot of things. Um, but like you said, a good coach or in a good gym the owners or the coaches are going to be talking to their, to their members about more than just the workout. It's going to be right. about your sleep, about how you're fueling. Cause yeah, how you're fueling is so important and that's going to directly impact your performance. Yeah. Um, so sort of like going down that rabbit hole, um, how did you get involved with element? Where did element come from? Like what's the background of it? Um, and, and then let's start, let's start jamming a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that is kind of a long story and I'll try to, to keep it <laughs> brief, but um, because of my gut issues, you know, I've eaten kind of a low carb, peri ketogenic diet for like 23 years now. Like I'll, I'll, I'll deviate a little here and there, but I mean, I, I have celiac, so I can't play with gluten. Like the, the risk reward deal is just not, not yeah. there at all. And I find that I just generally do a little bit better on lower carb, yeah. but the physical activity I tend to do, uh, I, I have a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I, I, you know, the, the strength training that I like to do tends to be a little bit more on the higher intensity side. Mm -hmm. The bugger is that a low carb diet doesn't beautifully fuel a glycolytic higher intensity type sports. Like sure. it, it, it's very much like, uh, you know, at, at odds with each other. And I had tinkered for the last 20, you know, some odd years with, do I do some pre-workout carbs? Do I do some post-workout carbs? You know, do I, 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 but I just found it difficult to make things work. Like if yeah. I ate enough to improve my performance, then I started getting some gut issues and it was just kind of a, a weird thing. And I, I kept fiddling with that though. And then I, I found these two guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who were the founders of a, a program called Keto Games. And it's this mm -hmm. online ketogenic diet bootcamp where they, they, help people 
affect these body composition changes. And it's kind of jaw dropping. Like it's amazing the, the uh, success stories you saw from, from folks when I started looking at it specifically on body composition. But then I started noticing that they had it, uh, in particular women who were competing at really high levels in like CrossFit and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when they were eating ostensibly okay. this kind of lower carb diet. I'm like, what, what the heck's going on with these guys? So I kind of stalked Tyler and Luis and started hanging out with them and, yeah. and then, you know, shook them down to look at what I was doing and gave them my, my kind of meal plan and everything. And they're like, Oh, your protein, carbs, fat look fine. That all looks good. But we suspect that you're deficient in electrolytes, specifically sodium. Mm-hmm. And me being a biochemist, I was like, Oh no, 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 I'm good. Like I, <laughs> my electrolytes are on point. Um, you know, I salt my food. I'm, I'm totally good. And, uh, I I'm sure that at this stage of the game, they had heard this 10,000 times, if not a hundred thousand times. And they probably, eye rolled so hard that their head practically fell off of their shoulders, but they're kind people. And they, uh, they didn't kick me out of their lives. And it, it took me another year of just flailing and floundering, but eventually they were like, listen, man, the problem, I guarantee you, is inadequate electrolytes, specifically sodium. Yeah. Weigh and measure everything that you're doing, including your electrolyte intake and all the salt you put on your food. And we want you at at least five grams of sodium per day was kind of what the benchmark was. I was at less than two grams of sodium per day. Um, And it was as simple as they were like, okay, so drink some pickle juice, like take like six ounces of pickle juice, drink Mm -hmm. it and go do your next workout. Right. I did it. And it was like magic happened. I just couldn't even believe it. I was like, Oh my God. You know, like I had that lower, lower end gear that just didn't seem to exist when I've been eating this lower carb diet. And when you dig into the kind of physiology behind it, when we are eating a higher carb intake, our insulin levels tend to be higher. Insulin fosters the production of this hormone called aldosterone and aldosterone causes us to retain sodium. When we retain sodium, we retain fluid balance and whatnot. And the opposite of that happens when we are either fasting or eating a low carb diet. We tend to experience this thing called the naturesis of fasting where we lose sodium and we lose water and it's really a, it's a non-trivial challenge to stay on top of it. And it, it's one of the things that within diet circles, the folks advocating for low-carb diets, and I'm as, as guilty of this as anybody, had just missed entirely the need for ramping up sodium intake for folks. And this is true even when people just go from like a highly processed diet, which is where folks get 80% of the sodium that they, they consume Mm -hmm. only 5% of the sodium that people consume comes from like the salt shaker at the dinner table. Like that is almost a a laughable contribution to this whole story. And so if somebody just shifts their diet from like a highly processed diet to a minimally processed diet, they're going to dramatically reduce their glycemic intake and it, which will cause them to retain sodium less, and they're going to consume less sodium unless they really actively, you know, take, take some work to, to fix that. So yeah, that was all kind of the genesis of this thing of me realizing that sodium and electrolytes are this big deal. Tyler and Luis had known this for like 10 years, but I was, <laughs> I was late to the, to the game on this, but I was like, man, when I look at the folks that we collectively are working with and my, my folks in particular, all of these issues, you know, like exercise performance, sleep issues, kind of mm-hmm. like thyroid, HPTA axis dysregulation. I'm like, this is all low inadequate sodium intake, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, it's probably the case in the vast majority of these people. So we knew that we needed to get information out to people to help them. And so we put together this thing called Keto Aid, which was basically how to mix your own electrolyte drink at home. And it was yeah. this much table salt, this much potassium chloride from no salt, some mm-hmm. magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, shake it up, you know, and go. And we, we were, we were so unsophisticated. Like we didn't even use it as like a, a an email, you know, funnel or anything. We just put it up. It was like, yeah. you know, here you use go. this thing. Yeah, here you go. And within about six months, we had a half million downloads of this. Thing. Wow. Yeah, that's, was cr- that's quick. Crazy. Yeah. And And then we started getting 
which was cool, was very validating. And we started getting lots of feedback like, oh my God, like all these problems that I've had from the way I've been eating are, are improved. I feel mm-hmm. way better. I have that low gear. My sleep is improved, all this stuff. But there was one complaint that we had, which was uh, people when they were traveling, they're going through TSA and their three bags of white powder were like a, That's right. a problem, you know? And so these folks that were benefiting from this free downloadable guide were like, hey, why don't you guys make a convenient product that we could could use, you know, take with mm-hmm. us and everything. And that was the whole genesis of this. Like uh. there was no like, you know, mustache twisting, like, oh man, we're <laughs> going to create this, uh, this electrolyte product. But it would, what was kind of cool about all of this is that I went into all of this with um, a decent background in biochemistry and physiology, but I didn't have strong uh, predilection one way or the other with mm-hmm. regards to formulation and all that type of stuff. And so yeah. When I started looking at the how we might formulate this thing, what we did is we looked at the the diets of about 300 people that were in the keto gains program. They were tracking all their macros through a chronometer, so very detailed information. And we looked at how much calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium that these folks were getting on like a whole food, minimally processed diet, which was what our our goal was for for people. People were great on calcium. They were a little deficient in magnesium, more deficient in potassium, and then just woefully deficient in sodium. And that was the way that we we formulated the product. It was a gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of of potassium, and then 60 milligrams of of, uh, magnesium. And what's been kind of funny uh, as we've progressed along the way, we've had lots of people say, oh, you totally screwed up the formula. Mm -hmm. I'm like, go do it, man. Like, like, like jump in, like make, make it better, you know? Right. And I, I don't know that I would say that it's perfect because perfect, you, you know, there's all kinds of different situations and all that stuff, but it's pretty damn good. And it's very different than what, um, most of the other products represent. Um, yeah. and, and it, uh, folks get kind of wrapped around the axle of like the potassium intake, which is absolutely critically important, but we are also like unrelenting and telling people you need to eat a minimally processed diet so that right. you get the potassium from your food. And, and, you know, that, so this thing literally is supplemental to the whole story, not the thing that you should go to, to right. try to fill all the gaps of a shitty diet. And, um, and, you know, we've, we, I think we are one of, if not the fastest growing health and wellness company in the last couple of years, like we're mm-hmm. incredibly fortunate. I would have never, ever, ever in my life, predicted that when you think about the ubiquity of like electrolyte products and energy drinks and everything. Like I, I got honest truth is that when we formulated element, we came out with a, a citrus and some spicy flavors. And yeah. those were designed so that if it failed as an electrolyte product, we were going to pivot and then sell it as like a drink mixer for like margaritas oh. and stuff like that. Because I, I just, I was, I just wasn't sure. I had a feeling it might do really well, but I was mm-hmm. also like, this is either going to go great or it's going to be like a plane into a mountainside. So yeah. The, the, you know, and if you can, if you can spin up a good drink base like that, that's usually pretty successful. So now we get to do both. So, well, yeah. I think you'll yeah. be uh, happy to hear that uh, I've used element in all of those capacities uh, <laughs> nice. in, in my life. My wife is a huge margarita fan and um, yeah, having a little bit of that spicy salt in there um, just makes it, you know, makes it feel a little bit better for you. Right. So <laughs> pretty legit. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I've actually got a little bit right here. So I'm drinking some coffee, but we've got a mint chocolate element in the coffee and that that's my morning routine now. Cause like you said, yeah. you know, generally speaking who this product is like sort of geared towards is someone who's already hopefully eating a minimally processed whole food based diet. And like you mentioned, of the sodium that we get, the typical, you know, American diet gets is from that highly processed food. It's not coming from, you know, you're pouring teaspoons of salt onto your plate every, every night at dinner. Um, And a lot of those people are deficient in these electrolytes. That's, that's who this is geared towards. And I would say for myself, you know, going through like my own challenges, that's exactly what happened to me. Why I started taking an electrolyte supplement in the first place is twice in my life. I've had to once, once was just like, you know, in my pediatrician's office when I was in high school, 
And then the second time was more, you know, in my late twenties, mid, mid to late twenties, when I was in the hospital because of hydration and electrolyte issues. Mm. So, you know, mm -hmm. the first story in high school, I'm in, you know, the, the middle of my freshman year of wrestling season, and I'm trying to like cut some weight type of thing. I'm drinking plenty of water and just flushing mm. myself out, right? Like yeah. trying to eat a whole food, minimally processed diet, trying to eat like a low, a low calorie diet too. Cause I'm trying to like skim a few pounds, but I wasn't supplementing with anything. And when I was, you know, it was a bottle of Gatorade here and there, which as I learned more about nutrition, well, that's not probably the, probably the best way to go about things if you're trying to lose weight. Right. Um, but, and then, you know, the same thing happened later in my life. I'm pushing myself, I'm pushing myself, I'm eating relatively healthy diet and of the non-processed stuff, but I'm not adding sodium to my food and things because all of the information that I've been like drilled into my brain growing up is, you know, we have too much sodium where so many people have high blood pressure, all this stuff, like, mm -hmm. oh, you should avoid the salt. Well, then I wound up in the hospital with an IV in my arm, pumping me full of electrolytes because I was way, way deficient. Um, yeah. So I started taking this electrolyte supplement. It's probably been like, I don't know, four or five years ago now, every single day, haven't had an issue since. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, just crazy. It's, uh, it, it, one of the interesting things when I was doing my diligence, getting into all this, I just started looking around it like, um, so one thing is kind of the medical side of like the hypertension and blood pressure. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try to remember to circle back to that. But I was really looking at like sodium intake, electrolyte intake and athletic performance and what was kind of shocking. And uh, uh, Tim Noakes, uh, Professor Tim Noakes wrote this amazing book mm -hmm. called Waterlogged, which was looking at the overhydration of, of athletes that has happened over the last 30 years. And there was this kind of weird thing that happened when I was a kid, like I said, I, I turned 50 the beginning of this year. When I was a kid, there was still, we were still right on the cusp of um, our football coaches would tell us to take a salt tablet mm -hmm. and kind of chew on that and then sip water per our, our, our need, you know, our, sure. our thirst mechanism. And it worked great. It, it, it actually worked really, really well. And then uh, Gatorade came on and just as an aside, when Gatorade was first released, we had, we had a, a, couple of friends go to the Gatorade uh, Museum there, yeah. there at Florida State University and everything. When Gatorade first came out, it had a gram of sodium per serving. Like it was very, very different than what it is now. Mm -hmm. So it was yeah. actually, it, it, when you look back, they were actually like really on point with the, with the stuff that they were doing. And then it's kind of gotten, you know, tweaked over, over time. But when I really poked around, like there's this great report that makes the case that there is no no example in the literature of people allowing themselves to die from dehydration. Like the only people who die from dehydration specifically inadequate bodily fluid is if they're like trapped in a mine cave in, or they get lost in the wilderness or something like that, but sure. Yeah, they don't have people, access. Yeah. yeah. They just don't have access, but there are thousands of people that have died from a, a hyponatremia from mm -hmm. over consuming water, yeah. diluting their sodium. And like every single year, like every like Spartan race marathon, like it, it, the, the people end up over consuming water without adequate uh, electrolytes and they get hospitalized and occasionally they die. It's mm -hmm. improving a little bit because the idea of hydration is definitely making its way to people much more consistently, but it was a, a fascinating eye-opener that the, the, the real danger there is not under-consuming water, it's over-consuming it, particularly in the context of inadequate electrolytes. Like right. it is a quick way to, to kill someone and like, sure. um, like fraternity hazing and stuff like that, where they right. have people drink huge amounts of water, like, you know, lots of people have died from, from that type of stuff. So like that was an, an interesting side of this that you could easily make the case that it's more dangerous to under consume sodium and over consume water than the flip side, mm -hmm. it, which seems kind of crazy when you look at all the like, you know, health magazines at the checkout right. counter and you know, the eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day and all that type of stuff. The, the interesting thing on the, the diet or, or the uh, diet blood pressure side of things and I had been savvy to this for a long time, but 
there's definitely a relationship between blood pressure and sodium. So <laughs> blood pressure is driven in large part by how much sodium we retain. But the thing is, is that when, when folks with hypertension, high blood pressure have been put on low carb or uh, low sodium diets, their blood pressure doesn't really go down. It goes down a little bit, but it's not like this really profound change. And, and so there was definitely, you know, somebody who is insulin resistant and hypertensive, you're not doing them a favor by giving them more salt, but you're also mm -hmm. not really fixing the underlying problem by restricting salt. And part yeah. of the problem with that is that um, we, we store salt in our bones. So mm -hmm. even somebody on a low salt diet, if they are still insulin resistant, they'll pull sodium out of their bones still have high blood pressure. And then the, as they pull the sodium out of their bones, they're also uh, leaching calcium out of their bones. So sure. maybe fostering osteoporosis and all that type of stuff. Yeah, was, sure. You know, just crazy across the board was that if somebody's hypertensive, they need to reduce their glycemic load. Like they need to reduce the total amount of calories and really look at like the amount and type of carbohydrate that they're eating. And if we can modify that, and it doesn't have to be a ketogenic diet, but just basically a, a less processed, lower glycemic load diet is going to work miracles for blood pressure for the vast majority of people. And then yeah. the ironic thing there is once you are not like bloating up like a tick from, from water retention, from insulin resistance, now you actually need to supplement with sodium, sure. particularly if you're active, because you're just not holding on to it the same way. What's going on, code listeners? Dr. Andrew Fix here. And I want to tell you about our friends at Element. Element makes a tasty electrolyte drink with everything that you need and nothing that you don't. That means the science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. And that's why I use it. I've been taking Element for two years now, and I absolutely love the stuff, and I wouldn't want to exercise without it. For all of you code listeners and friends of Physio Room, Element's offered a special to you guys, and I want you to take advantage of it. Go ahead and visit drinkelement.com slash physioroom. That's drinklmnt.com slash physioroom to receive that special offer. You're going to get a free variety pack with any purchase that you place, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because, you know, the general theme, it sounds like that you're talking about is, you know, if we start talking about hypertension and sodium is, you know, restricting the sodium isn't really addressing the root cause of right. why they have that condition in the first place. And addressing the root cause is, you know, we keep coming back to this, like element is not there or any electrolyte supplement for that matter. You can't supplement your way out of a shitty diet, right? Or out of right. a shitty way that you're, you're going about living your life. That's not what it's for. It's there to supplement and be a, an add-on to an already proper way to like fuel yourself with whole food um, and eating a proper diet. So, and that's basically what you're saying is like, right. That's not the root cause of the issue. Let's address the root cause. It's not, it's not the overconsumption of sodium. And, um, and then we may find out that the person actually needs to supplement more if they right. actually address the issue. So, yeah. And it, you know, reason I, I wanted you to touch on that and I appreciate you for doing that is when we introduce this to clients in the office, that's a lot of times the first, you know, first question that we get, because as I describe it to people, I make sure to let them know like, Hey, this is going to be more salty than probably a lot of the other things that you've tried. But that's not a bad thing because, you know, you already told me, they told me what type of diet they're eating and whatnot. I'm like, you know, you're, you probably need this. You're sweating a lot. You're right. pushing yourself. You probably need more than what you're actually getting. Unless you tell me you are loading up, you know, all of your food with salt. And usually the answer is no. Um, but that's people's first concern is like, Whoa, isn't, isn't that too much? Isn't that right. too much salt for me to have? And, um, we sort of start to try and unravel that conversation. So I think that'll be good for people to hear. Um, so, okay. So let's just take like a slight step back. Um, cause I don't want to assume that everybody listening to this, uh, recording is going to know exactly like, what is the purpose in our body from like an exercise standpoint standpoint, or just a function standpoint? Like, why do we need electrolytes in the first oh, place? Like, what do yeah. they do in our body? Like, you know, I, for the most part know the answer, but I don't know that everybody really knows like what's so important about electrolytes in the first place. 
Yeah, that's a good, really good good point. Uh, it, it's funny. This was kind of another like reawakening for me because I I've done innumerable like uh, you know classes where you learn the Krebs cycle and TCA cycle and you know carbohydrate goes through this this you know metabolic pathway and how energy is produced and um, it's easy though to lose appreciation like every single nerve impulse muscle contraction every a aspect of life that we experience is driven by sodium potassium pumps like yeah. a, a, this is the way that energy is produced in in uh, virtually all of living organisms you know whether whether single celled or, or multicellular is is creating these ion gradients and like within our bodies we tend to have more sodium outside of cells and more potassium inside of cells. And when those, it's almost like uh, thinking about uh, water behind a dam. And when that water goes through the dam, you can harness that energy. And, and part of the way that we make our energy is creating these gradients of sodium and potassium. And then when they normalize, it can produce action potentials, which is the contraction of muscles or the firing of nerves. So I mean, like literally every single thing that that we do biologically is, is largely driven by these uh, electrolyte-based sodium potassium pumps right. at, at, at kind of a, a root level. And this is also where, you know, people usually only start thinking about electrolytes once we get into like a cramping scenario or, or, or you know, some of these other gnarlier health considerations. But it, it's fairly obvious at this point that the first signs of electrolyte imbalance are diminished fine motor skill, kind of uh, brain fog and neurological right. fatigue. So there's minutes or, or hours of diminished, you know, kind of suboptimal performance leading up into that overt thing where like you get your toe cramp or your calf cramp or something. Right. By the time you're cramping from electrolyte in, uh, insufficiency, you're really far down the path to being kind of hosed. Mm -hmm. Like there was a lot, if you're concerned about performance, like you're playing tennis, there was a lot of tennis playing that you did. It was super suboptimal because the, the sodium potassium levels in your body were, were not appropriate to make right. everything work the way that it should. So that's why, you know, it, it literally the most fundamental level of life mm -hmm. that is where, um, you know, uh, electrolytes play their, their key role this maybe gets a little far out, out into the weeds, but I think people with a little bit of a medical or science background would appreciate it. But the only things that I, the, the most tightly regulated processes in our bodies are pH and electrolyte. Yep. Um, blood sugar is very important, but you can have almost orders of magnitude changes in the amount of blood sugar before, you know, the body will, will really uh, freak out. But if pH goes up or down by just a little bit, if electrolytes go up or down by just a little bit, like you can get sick or die from that process. Yeah. So it, it's uh, the tight regulation tells me that it's really important, very, very critical to, to stay on top of that. And we, mm -hmm. we see this manifest, you know, it, with a host of different health issues. But the, the settler parts are, I think, what people are kind of, battling most of the time. Most people aren't hospitalized because of low right. electrolyte status and whatnot, but they may be feeling like garbage all frequently. Their mm -hmm. sleep may be disturbed, um, difficulty falling asleep, uh, uh, artificially elevated heart rate, like all these different things from inadequate electrolyte intake. And I, I see this more and more and more kind of the higher the activity level that the person kind, yeah. of, kind of participates in. Yeah. 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 And you know, out here in uh, Colorado, I'm sure the same, same for you, where you live, a lot of endurance athletes, a lot of people that are really pushing their body and yeah, maybe they're suffering from, you know, things like cramping. Maybe they're not, maybe they're, they're just in that suboptimal performance realm, which I think so many people find themselves in where they don't really necessarily think too much of it because I think the way, you know, the way that our whole society is, is like, we don't really address a problem until it is like literally smacking us in the face. Right. We're having this like V8 moment and you're forced to take action. But if we can move the needle a little bit more towards the like, Hey, rather than like reacting to a problem, let's try to prevent that problem from happening in the first place. But a lot of times people don't know that until, you know, until right. like you said, when you were um, 
stalking Tyler and Luis, you, you were like, no, no, I'm doing fine with this until they sort of like proved to you like, no, this is the issue. And until you actually tried it, you know, a year later, then, then you started to see the gains in performance. And you had mentioned, you know, pre-workout supplements and things like that's kind of how, how I use, use this product is, you know, I've never been one to like really enjoy pre-workouts. Like naturally I'm pretty high energy and whatnot, you know, I'll have some caffeine and whatnot, but I don't feel like I need caffeine. I'm pretty jazzed up to work out as it is. Right. But you know, if I'm, um, under not hydrated, if I'm under fueled from an electrolyte standpoint, I I'm going to feel that like diminishing returns of the performance. And a lot of times the the pre-workout is, you know, just putting some salt in some water or just taking a packet of element or, or whatever. Um, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. So literally, like you mentioned, basically every function of our body is fueled by electrolytes. The one we think of the most is probably the, you know, the muscle function, the movement, the muscle contractions when we're lacking, maybe you get things like cramping, but like you alluded to, if you're at that point, you're already way down the path of, of being under on your electrolyte balance. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, the body, human body is so wild. Like you mentioned, you know, blood sugar compared to blood glucose compared to electrolytes. If, if something is like tightly monitored in our body with how, how great our body is at like buffering issues, that's clearly very important. Right. If like, if we need to be in this very fine window and if we're too, it's kind of like our temperature in our body, right? Like temperature is very, very finely monitored too. If we're a couple degrees too high, a couple of degrees too low, our body starts having all sorts of issues. Well, pH balance and electrolytes are kind of the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, uh, it was just kind of an interesting eye opener to me when I started looking at what are the things that have the tightest regulatory bounds on mm-hmm. them, you know, before things go, go sideways for yeah. us. Yeah. 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 Human body wouldn't have evolved the way that it did if, if it didn't monitor certain things. So, right. um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, you know, conversation that we just kind of went down. Um, you know, aside from just electrolytes, um, you know, again, I would love for you to just kind of summarize, we're talking a lot about the coming back to the root cause of issues first and foremost, you want to make sure you're eating a healthful whole food based diet. And you talk a lot about whether it's low carb or paleo is kind of like what works for you, or more specifically eating like this ancestral type of diet. Um, and there's so many different words out there, you know, there's a lot of people are doing vegetarian and vegan and paleo and keto and all all different things. And, and what we know is some things work better for some people than others. And you know, everyone has their own um, optimal balance for their body. But like, if someone was interested in following an ancestral or a paleo type of diet, like generally speaking, what does that mean? I uh, mean, you know, even and I'm opening up a big, big yeah, yeah, box you, here. You know, where I've tried to go even a step maybe simpler than that is just yeah. looking at um, nutrient density. Yeah, like the, the, this is kind of I think where the rubber hits the road, and um, nutrient density is just this idea of getting the most nutrition, like vitamins, minerals, essential nutrients per mm-hmm. calorie that we could, Best bang we could for get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like if we were investing money, you get a 10% return instead of a 5% return, you know? Sure. And, and um, when we start thinking about nutrient density, it's interesting the things that are winners and losers in that. Um, seafood, organ meats, leaner cuts of, of uh, ruminant meats, you know, like uh, cows and, and uh, sheep and goats and stuff like that. Very, very good. Um, herbs and spices, very good. Mm-hmm. Fruits are pretty good. Vegetables are okay. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're okay, but it kind of varies. Like kale actually isn't like the rock star that you would think it is. Things like endive or, and, and things like that are, are much better. Um, root vegetables are okay. Uh, Things that are pretty poor are interestingly like grains and legumes. Eh, they're, they're, they're pretty low down the list. Like you, you end up needing to eat a remarkable amount of calories in that situation to get right. the same, just kind of like protein content to say nothing of like the, the rest of the, uh, the nutrients. And then we have this other side of things. So you have the basic like, uh, uh, nutrient density, like how much vitamins, minerals, essential nutrients are in the food. Mm -hmm. But then 
any given food, depending on how it's prepared and what things are in it, it may be more or less accessible to our bodies. So sure. like there was a really fascinating study where they, they fed folks uh, traditionally milled corn tortillas with, with you know, meat in, in the, uh, the, basically the taco type deal. But corn has a lot of phytic acid. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a, a metal sequestering um, uh, organic acid that basically bonds to zinc and iron and, and different, different ionic metals that we would have in our diet. And what was interesting is you could eat a, a, a meal that was rich in, in zinc and uh, magnesium, these things that usually mm -hmm. people are deficient in. And that corn tortilla base had so much phytic acid in it that people absorbed almost none of the, uh, the minerals in it, which was, was kind of crazy. So this is another, this is where kind of that paleo diet perspective, because it looked yeah. a lot at like anti-nutrients and immunogenic products, you know, like uh, dairy can cause inflammatory responses for some people, the protein, not, not necessarily the, uh, the sugar and whatnot different plants like nightshades, tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants. And again, like um, the people can turn into religious zealots around this stuff where they're like, sure. never eat a tomato. And it's like, no, that's not the thing. <laughs> if you're, if you're having a, if you've otherwise buttoned up a lot of your life, but you're still like having some gut issues or like some, some, you know, joint pain or systemic mm -hmm. inflammation, then we have some more layers that we can kind of peel on this stuff. But I think that the nutrient density piece with an eye towards adequate protein intake, like that's really where good, effective nutrition kind of, kind of lies. Um, yeah. uh, getting about a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight, I think is a good mm -hmm. window that, that people can, can operate from, uh, the dense protein sources are very satiating. Like it's difficult to overeat those things and we tend yeah. not to overeat other stuff. Yeah. If we undereat protein, we have a tendency to overeat everything else. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, it, it's this concept called the protein leverage hypothesis, which I, I, I think is pretty, pretty useful for helping people to kind of dial this stuff in. And as part of our healthy rebellion community, we do these resets three times a year where we work on sleep and food and exercise. And usually body composition is one of the main things that folks want to work on. Yeah. And I, I tell you, we never, ever, ever work with people who have body composition goals who are eating adequate protein. They're right. always under eating protein. Like they're, yeah. they're never on point with protein. Like, oh, I'm still just overeating. Like they're always under eating protein. And then it usually leads into other, you know, kind of problematic dietary choices. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's so interesting, like sort of hearing you say that I was having a conversation with another gym owner here in town and, and they were giving kind of a, a talk to their gym community about nutrition. Um, it was very much a discussion about like, what are the key points that we need to hit with nutrition? And it's all the same stuff you're talking about, right? It's like eat whole food, get adequate, um, get adequate protein intake, drink, drink, mostly water, like these types of things. And my wife has, um, over the last several years been involved in the, you know, the aesthetic sport, fitness, body, you know, bodybuilding type of mm -hmm. realm. And that's, that's a consistent theme. All of the competitors that are like tracking their macronutrients, the most important one that they want to make sure they hit is protein. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not having body composition issues. In fact, they're like among the most, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint and a body composition standpoint, some of the most fit people there are. Right. Um, and it, it just all comes back down like to that protein. Um, but what I would love for you to touch on, because I think a lot of the clients that we end up working with, a lot of the people that'll probably listen to this podcast, you know, they're probably getting closer to the amount that you're talking about, like a, a gram of protein per pound of, of body mass and whatnot. But I still think there's from other individuals that I talk to, maybe ones that aren't quite as involved in the fitness lifestyle and fitness industry still are struggling with this, this myth that's out there that eating too much protein is bad for our body. Like it's going to cause our kidneys to shut down or some other organs in our body and whatnot. And I, I still hear that sometimes. Um, so, so what would you say to someone who's like, has those type of concerns? Um, Cause I know you're someone that can speak to that. Yeah, man, it, it, that's 
so that was where the book uh, Sacred Cow and also mm-hmm. we have a film Sacred Cow the that book looks at the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of meat-inclusive right. food systems. So also we might as well throw like all the climate change concerns that people have yeah. around like, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and all this right. stuff. And great um, book, great book too. Thank you. I thought thank it you. was, I thought it was awesome. Um, you know, it got recommended to me and uh, yeah, it was cause you know, I kind of did the same thing as you. There was a short period of time where I started to eat a little bit more of a vegan based diet. And I probably was what I call like 95% vegan for about a four month time period. Mm-hmm. And though I was feeling good, um, like generally, like I felt like I felt better. I think looking back on it, cause I don't do that anymore. I think it was just cause I would cut out a lot of the processed stuff, right? right? I was right. eating a more whole food diet. Um, however, I did feel like what you said is I was having to eat a lot more calories to, to feel satiated and to like feel, feel adequately full and have enough energy and whatnot. So I was just eating more food. Um, but it was whole food. So that, that's probably the part that was making me feel good. I opted to, you know, move back the other way. Um, and I feel great now because I'm still eating a generally whole food based diet. Of course, I, you know, don't like strongly restrict things. I, I have treats every now and then, but, um, I feel just as good as I felt then. Um, still including meat in my diet. So, right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so what are the big meat, you know, health concerns? Um, it's usually kind of vegan type doctors and they'll say meat causes cancer, meat causes heart disease, meat causes type two diabetes. And they'll do these, um, uh, meat accelerates aging, like mTOR, it's mm-hmm. like growth factors, all these things. Like it, it's interesting within, um, ketogenic diet circles, there's a group of people that are as afraid of protein as like raw vegans are afraid mm-hmm. of protein. It's kind of, kind of crazy, but the, the literature on this stuff or the support for this comes from epidemiological literature that is based around food frequency questionnaires. It's basically, they ask people to recall what they've eaten and then they correlate this with, you know, potential disease process. And these studies have been really soundly criticized in that people lie in the food frequency questionnaires. Like they kind of report what they think that the, the interviewers, you know, want Wants to hear. hear. Yeah. Right. Um, if you've ever watched uh, some of these true crime programs where there's videotape of an event that happened, and then there's a group of people that saw the event, but then you see what they're recollections of the event are as if the people were not even there. Like it's so random. Yeah. It doesn't match. So like, it's terrible. These studies have been criticized to the, to the point that uh, some very smart influential people have made the case that like, they shouldn't be funded anymore. Like they're not really answering any questions. It creates a lot of, a lot of confusion. And there, there's some interesting counterpoints to this, like the, uh, the country with the longest lifespan on the planet also happens to be the one with the largest meat consumption, which is Hong Kong. And it's like, <laughs> it's a stepwise uh, pattern. And there's some other interesting data that has emerged over time, which is, which goes totally counter to like the, the China study claims um, as meat consumption has increased globally within developing countries, mm-hmm. lifespan has increased. Like people are better better fed and have higher nutritional status and they uh, subsequently lived longer. Um, the, the protein causes kidney damage. Um, there's absolutely nothing that supports that. If you already have kidney damage right. and a higher protein intake can degrade kidney function, uh, uh, you, you know, possibly a higher rate. But the interesting thing with that is that so much of the main causes of kidney damage, like a uh, polycystic kidney disease and whatnot is driven from insulin resistance and high blood glucose levels. So this is a situation where if the, because the, the elevated glucose uh, content of the blood, it, it, they create these things called AGEs, advanced glycation end products, where it literally like caramelizes the, the proteins of our body. And, Mm -hmm. um, it'll damage the kidneys. It makes us go blind faster. It damages the brain. Like this is why type two diabetics are aging about a third faster than a a normal, a euglycemic Mm. individual. Like they're they're, they're just 
you know, it, it, oxidative stress, all this stuff. It's really mm -hmm. terrible. But um, what's interesting about that is the recommendation for these kidney patients is uh, low protein, higher carb diet, which uh, isn't really addressing the problem. And if you do a little bit of poking around and you look at like a modest protein ketogenic diet, those ketone bodies actually seem to um, uh, recover and and foster regrowth of the the kidney material that has been damaged over the sure. course of time. Doesn't fix everybody. Doesn't help all situations. But it's it's as contrary to the the kind of dominant narrative as as you could get. And um, I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff. Yeah, I mean it's um, there's a lot of really compelling. Um, messaging around this idea that animal products are giving you cancer and accelerating aging. And, yeah. you know, there was, uh, the, uh, game changers, um, you know, vegan documentary, where right. Like, uh, dudes can't get boners and yeah, you, you know, all this stuff. And, yeah. um, it, the, the interesting thing is, um, it's very easy on that kind of pro vegan side of things to just do this list. Like, Meat causes cancer, meat gives you heart disease, meat makes you infertile. And you just do this long list, it uh, uh, accelerates climate change, it's unethical. And then to address any of that is a mini PhD thesis at every single step. Right. Because credibly, I can't just say, no, that's wrong, and then leave it at that. Like I've actually got to explain it. The sure. interesting thing is these guys don't really explain it. They just throw it out there. They'll flash like the image of a, a research paper and then that's it. And, you know, mainstream media, social media, um, academia by and large, it accepts what they're, they're selling. But yeah. then people like me will get in and do like a line by line takedown of, of what the claims are. And it's like, okay, this is the material they've cited. Here's what this thing actually says all these counterpoints to it and, mm -hmm. and there you go yeah so it's uh yeah 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 no and and i love that you know being someone who you know went to school through like a science-based program at, at the end of the day what what we're sort of talk touching on and talking about here is like what are the sources that the information is coming from like does the data does the research actually support these these things and you know what i love to do is find you know, whether it's a, a medical provider or, or just a friend or whatever, is people who, you know, whether they feel strongly one way or another way, they're open-minded to hearing other, per, like another person's point of view, whether or not that changes their opinion, that's fine. But what really frustrates me is when someone is just so close-minded about like what it is that they believe in, what they won't even hear any other options, even when the other information is presented with like very thorough research backing or whatever. It's like, I just love when people are open-minded to different ideas. Like, I think, I think that's kind of how you are. Obviously you've gone through, like, you've challenged what you thought you knew by learning more and finding out more information and talking with other really, really smart people. Um, you kind of how you got down the element route and, um, you know, what we thought we knew 50 years ago is not necessarily what we know today. And, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to probably know something different. Hopefully we've improved on it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. being like a voracious learner is, is awesome because, you know, if you can just challenge what you think, you know, um, or just live by this mindset of like, you know, I, I don't know a lot. There's a lot more that I don't know than what I do know. Um, whether that's around nutrition or whether it's climate change or electrolytes or, or whatever, whatever we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, and, and not to politicize this thing, but I, I will throw this out there because I, I think it's really important. We've reached a point within media, social media, kind of the uh, the zeitgeist that we exist in where it's um, difficult bordering on impossible to raise questions around what the dominant narrative is. Mm -hmm. So the, the book Sacred Cow calls into question this idea that animal husbandry is this massive contributor to climate change. And right out of the gate, we cite information that, um, you know, like there have been claims from these kind of World Economic Forum, WHO-backed uh, organizations that say that 70% of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal husbandry. Mm -hmm. It's patently false. It's more like 2 to, to 3% as a beginning. But what happens is 
this stuff is said, it goes out, it's kind of like peeing in a pool, you never get it back out. Yep. There's no OG, there's no like strong work to undo what's been done. Like these people can be very sloppy, seemingly intentionally on the front end. And then now you can still, it's pretty easy to cruise around Twitter and find credible looking people citing numbers like, you know, 70% of greenhouse gas emissions come from, from animal husbandry, which is totally false. And then there's this next layer to it that like, particularly with, with grazing animals, the methane and the carbon dioxide they are releasing was part of a plant that that plant pulled the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to grow. It's part of a carbon cycle. So we are still at a spot where we generally are able to have this conversation around this stuff, but we've, we've been in these weird situations where me simply saying, hey, we need to have a nuanced discussion around climate change. I've had people say, well, you must be a climate change denier then. And I'm like, no, I understand the, I understand solar radiation, you know, polar gases absorb radiation that can heat the planet. Venus is a great example of this. It's 800 degrees on the surface. I, I get it. What I'm saying is there's a bunch of nuance to it that mm -hmm. we need to discuss because it is an important topic and we should get it right. It's kind of like if you are, if one is performing neurosurgery, you don't want to wear oven mitts doing that. You want the finest motor skills you can possibly get. And one of the things that I, I would just beg your listeners to think about and to really advocate for is we need to create the space for people to push back against the dominant narrative. And, and sometimes they're going to be wrong. Oftentimes they're going to be wrong, you know, but once we have decided that we have it all figured out, we yeah. have literally died as a culture. Like that is the end of the development of exploring truth. That that was kind of my my thing when I said, hopefully 50 years from now, we know more yeah. than what we did. That hasn't always been the case throughout history. We, we've had dark ages and we've had points where we go backwards because ideology is such that you can't question authority. And sure. we're at this weird spot where that is kind of becoming the norm where people are remarkably comfortable with like, well, I just don't agree with this person. And mm -hmm. I think that this is right. And they should be silenced. And there should be someone monitoring Twitter, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And it, it, it's, um, it is absolutely horrifying to me how short sighted this is and how incredibly dangerous this is. But it seems to be the um, folks are remarkably comfortable with with censoring the, the, their peers. And yeah. they, they always think, this is one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll mention from within the CrossFit circles. CrossFit had some really weird dis, you know, dysfunction with um, shooting people down who were critical of the methodology and it, mm -hmm. you know, maybe correctly, maybe incorrectly. But what it ended up happening is that the best thinkers within CrossFit left. And then you had a literally a brain vacuum there. And then it's like the rogue games and the, you know, most of the really good thinking around CrossFit type training doesn't come from CrossFit HQ itself anymore. It comes from everybody peripheral to it who kind of got chased out. And um, that would be a really terrible thing to do for us to uh, hammer our biomedical academics and, and whatnot in, in such a way that they just cease researching things like climate change and whatnot, because it's just it's too dangerous for their career, you know? Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. And, you know, and I love that. And that in a way that's kind of where this podcast came from. And I mm -hmm. think the the part that you just mentioned, like, you know, you hope the listeners, you know, pay attention to this is like, we want people to challenge the status quo and not just like be okay with, you know, just what they've been told, you know, be willing to investigate, be really curious about things have intelligent discussions around things and be advocates for their own health. Right. And that in a way, that's kind of where, kind of where this podcast came from and um, you know, why we want to talk to people like you and, and the other folks that we've had and will have on this show. But, um, but Rob, this has been fun. I know, um, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you've got other things to do, but I think we touched on a lot of cool things from, you know, exercise to nutrition, to electrolytes, to, you know, even starting to, 
talk about climate change and whatnot. Yeah. If people want to find out more about you, I want to make sure I sort of plug your show here. Um, you guys have got a program called Healthy Rebellion Radio. Is that right? Yep. What do you yep. guys talk about on that show? If you could give the listeners kind of a summary if they wanted to come check you guys out on there. Yeah, I, I mean, we uh, it's a Q&A program mainly where uh, listeners will write in questions and we try to answer those to the best of our ability, a host of different health topics, but I mean, sleep, food, training, um, community, gut microbiome stuff. Uh, definitely, I, I spend a fair amount of bandwidth uh, to this kind of climate change, sustainable food systems kind of kind of area, which has almost been career suicide for me, but I, I have two, two, I have seven and nine-year-old daughters. And um, uh, I do think that it behooves us to get this part of the story right, you know, and, and so I, I do devote a fair amount of time to trying to unpack that topic and have some, some open discussions. Uh, robwolf.com is kind of my main, main hub. I have a substack, robwolf.substack.com. Uh, I, in theory, I'm on social media, but I don't, I'm not there. I post stuff. I don't yeah. interact with people there on my Substack. I interact with people at the healthy rebellion. I interact with people, but I, I, um, I'm torn as to whether or not I'm actually worsening our world by even having like an Instagram and a Twitter account and stuff like that. Uh, I, I'm still kind of back and forth, but right now I use that as broadcast only. And then if people want to interact, they can go to the other spots. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah. we'll put all of that information there in the show notes, robwolf.com. That's Rob with two Bs, you guys, if you're searching that. Um, be sure to check this guy out. Read some of the books that we mentioned at the beginning. Um, you know, Check out the Healthy Rebellion Radio so you can find out from Rob and his team a little bit more information. Again, thank you guys for listening to this episode of The Code with special guest Rob Wolf. Rob, thank you for your time and being on here. Um, I hope you have an awesome rest of your Thursday and um, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Awesome. Take care. Thanks, Rob. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye.